The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 26th, 2018. On this week's show, SB Nation's Spencer Hall will join us to discuss Texas A&M's seven-overtime victory over LSU and other less insane college football happenings. Joshua Robinson of the Wall Street Journal will also be here to talk about the biggest soccer match in the history of Argentina between Boca Juniors and River Plate, which got canceled after an attack on the Boca team bus. And Slate's Jim Newell will let us know if he got suckered into paying 1995 to watch Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson play something resembling golf for a winner-take-all purse of $9 million. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Stefan, I can get you to show up anywhere for $9 million. Oh, for 1995, you could get me to show up. Uh, $19.95 million. Correct. It's a deal. Agreed. Uh, shall we discuss college football? Do you it. ready? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The first two seven-overtime games in major college football history were both won by Arkansas in the early 2000s. Arkansas was then led by a quarterback, Matt Jones, who years later was found by a police officer in a car where he was allegedly cutting up cocaine with a Foot Locker gift card. After watching LSU lose to Texas A&M 74-72 in seven overtimes, I can attest that the scene that I just described works as a slogan for college football overtime. College football overtime it's like cutting up cocaine with a Foot Locker gift card. Joining us now is the author of the best-selling book, 101 Things to Do with a Foot Locker Gift Card. It's SB Nation Spencer Hall. Welcome, Spencer. So, you know, the weirdest thing is that it sold as well as it did, despite 99 of those things being <laughs> cut up cocaine with Matt Jones in a car. Uh, why do you need 100 and 101 once you've got that 99? Uh, so this college football season has been pretty uh, meh. In the suspense department, Alabama, Clemson, and somehow Notre Dame all uh, ended the year undefeated. But on Saturday night and into Sunday morning on the SEC Network, channel 913 on my cable dial, uh, things got weird. LSU coach Ed Ogeron got a quote-unquote victory shower via Gatorade uh, when the score was 31-24 to when there were still 91 points left to be scored. Uh, LSU also, quote unquote, won the game three separate times before not winning the game. Your thoughts, Spencer? That everyone's a hero for making it to the seventh overtime. That's that's really what I have here. Additionally, I always like to think that football players are really well conditioned for the average person. However, it's not the kind of sport that does well when you expose it to more stress, i.e. when you ask these people to do more things aerobically. This is my long way of saying that when people go, oh, well, you know, SEC likes to brag about having great defenses. No one's good after the third overtime. Which argues that when college football's rules geniuses came up with the idea of this modified overtime, they weren't really thinking about what would happen if it went to six, seven or more overtimes. Mm -hmm. So should there be some changes here after that third overtime? Should the rules change, Spencer? And how? Well, they do change. It's uh, you have well, to go yeah, for two. You have to go for two, but that's not enough mm -hmm. of a change. We need yeah, more substantive that, changes. I think they should just keep moving them back, right? Like if you are stupid enough to get to a fifth or sixth overtime, you start at the 50. That's it. Start at the 50. Then we'll start you at the opponent's 40. We'll just keep moving it back so that this gradually gets more and more arduous. And there's a concede <laughs> option, right? Just concede. I think the one really good critique, Scott Van Pelt has it, of the college football overtime system is that we go from something that is timed to untimed, which is fair. I think that's just that's philosophically inconsistent. However, What about punting to no punting? 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what about just field goals? Back them up five yards until somebody Kicking. misses. Yeah, I I objected that on a I objected that on like a <laughs> DNA level. Kicking really should be eliminated from football entirely, right? I lo- I enjoy Wrong. people who are hardcore, what I would call orthodox pro fans, who are like, that's not real football, right? When it, real football is winning twenty four twenty one on a last minute field goal. Okay, since when are you so Euro that you're like, this is a real sport? Let's get the kicker out here. Yeah, the soccer player. No. Just, to, just there is no good way of ending a sporting event that isn't in regulation. No one does it well. Baseball's got one of the dumbest. Hey, let's play forever. Let's play forever. Let's make sure we do it by giving the opponent another shot. No, no, no. Let's be fair. You have to get to the bottom of the inning. Now that Les Miles is back in Kansas, I think there is the opportunity that a coach at some point in the future will have a quarterback quick kick in a college overtime. Uh, with with less miles out of football, that was off the table. But for those who who are not familiar, what happens is that you get the ball at the twenty five, and you try to score, and then the other team gets a chance to match you. And this happened uh, seven times in the LSU A and M game. And the thing that uh, that happened after this game, the thing that happens when you lose a game seventy four to seventy two and seven overtimes, is that there were a lot of opportunities for that not to have happened. And so in the LSU fandom community on America's favorite website, Tiger Droppings, um, there's a lot of screenshots being shared of uh, injustices that were visited upon LSU. Uh, there's a talk of secession from the Southeastern Conference. Mm-hmm. Any, anytime, there's, there. anytime there's talk of uh, secession, that you know, you know it's been a, a good game. Good word um, choice, too. Uh, Spencer, I, I do enjoy the like post-game screenshot phenomenon by people who do not understand the rules of football claiming things like illegal formations and it's it's the bargaining phase of the post the post defeat Mm -hmm. yeah i think that lsu fans in particular have been aggrieved by several different officiating issues this year so they are particularly sensitive to it there were bad calls Um, in this game there were there were many bad calls in this game there have been bad calls about lsu you know, officials, We like, I think the card system in other sports really gives people a perspective on officiating. They go, ah, you know, it's a yellow and that's judgmental. But, ah, you know, the ref's going to have good and bad days. In football, everything is so prescribed that I think it gives you the illusion that the official will always be right. You know, the, the, the rule book is so deep and it is so very specific about the things it prohibits or allows that we don't have the same kind of leeway we give to officials in other sports, you know, and I don't think that's true. I think we probably should. But um, also there's this LSU fans are just going to complain. They are. They just they really will. They'll be they'll be angry about it. But you know what? Anger doesn't cover. It's a complaint. You're complaining and you think everyone's against you because that's LSU's culture. Everyone's you know, no one's a rival and everyone's on the list. That's and now that includes the officials. Did you see the part uh, of the game or rather the post game Stefan where Jimbo Fisher's nephew <laughs> allegedly punched LSU offensive analyst Steve Cragthorpe who has Parkinson's disease and then former LSU great and New England Patriots legend Kevin Falk jumped in and uh, tried to break things up and which was captured in a spectacular photograph I did see the photograph yes mm, uh, Kevin Falk wasn't there to break it up <laughs> Um, Kevin, Kevin was there to end it. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin was there to finish things, y'all. That was not. He was not there to help. He was there to help him understand a few things. How's there's, that? Because there's no breaking up of fights in College Station <laughs> after midnight. I know you want to talk about uh, Larry Fedora, Stefan, as we all do. But my last thought on this is you should watch if you haven't seen it. There's a video of uh, Jimbo Fisher's nephew. Immediately after the game, when Texas A&M is experiencing the sort of like uh, jubilation that one feels after winning a seven overtime game, where he approaches his uncle, the head coach, Jimbo Fisher, in the tunnel. And like, there's no audio, (laughs) but what what you can see in like classic silent film fashion is nephew explains to uncle, who is head coach of Texas A&M, that I just punched a guy. In the pacemaker. (laughs) I just punched a guy in the pacemaker. Just the look on Jimbo Fisher's face is uh, something to hold. No, it's the last frame. And you know what it says? (laughs) It says, 
I can't, I can't take y'all nowhere. That's what it's saying. <laughs> it's like, I can't take y'all. Look, I, I come down here. I make all this money. I give you an opportunity. I get 70 million guaranteed. I do everything to elevate my family from the means in which we have come. And you come down here and you fight like the union told you to punch up a Pinkerton. That's what it was, right? Like you come down here and you're just tussling like it's Saturday night in Morgantown. <laughs> Stefan. No, no disrespect to Morgantown. No, hey, dude, that's no disrespect at all. Put your dukes up. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Les Miles earlier. He's coming back to college football. Mac Brown, it was announced on Monday morning, uh, will has been hired to replace. That's our Larry Fedora transition. Yes, it is. Had to replace Larry Fedora as the head football coach at the University of North Carolina. I don't know whether to get to Mac Brown first or Larry Fedora first. Maybe we should just start with Larry Fedora. Larry Fedora won a few games, lost a lot of games. This I've never year. thought that that was his real name. The Fedora part or the Larry part? <laughs> the Larry Fedora Mysteries. <laughs> It's undercover. Oh, that's what he's going to be doing next. Crimes. He's going to be writing a series of, uh, of children's, children's uh, young adult novels. Um, Fedora got some attention earlier this year when he said that football is under attack and there is no doubt there will be major decline in the country if football continues to, uh, to be under attack. Can we play a clip? Let's play a clip of Larry Fedora earlier this year. I fear that the game will get, will get pushed so far to one extreme that you won't recognize the game 10 years from now. That's what I worry about. And I do believe that if it gets to that point, that our country goes down too. <laughs> Spencer, are these people just crazy? Or are they just yeah. so locked yeah, in, their, in, their, in their bubbles that they, they believe that their shit smells like roses? Yeah, they're not sane. It's not, it's not normal and it's not sane to do any of these things. By the way, Larry is a Lawrence, so he was not given the birth name Larry. However, that's his middle name, his real name. And again, I've never told a joke in my life. I've just told like this is actually what happens. You won't believe his name is Herbert. His name is Herbert Fedora. So potentially Herb Fedora was fired. Which yeah, you'd go with Larry, right? Yeah, it's not it, doing what coaches do and living like that and putting such focus on a game as your primary living without any kind of perspective, um, you're going to see everything as a threat, won't you? Because what you're doing is inherently ridiculous. I've always thought that, that like when coaches are asked to defend what they do, you really don't want them to do that because it puts them in the defensive because there's not really a good argument for being paid as much as you're being paid to do what you're doing. And in addition to that, there may be some projection here on Larry Fedora. Preseason, the heat was on. Uh, it wasn't looking real good the way that they've been is if they had a quarterback, they were probably going to win eight or nine games. And if they didn't have a quarterback, they weren't going to win half that. It turns out the latter happened. And I, I think he was probably feeling a bit defensive from the start. Going back to how he did overall, Larry Fedora really didn't do, I think, a whole lot better or worse than anybody else who's been the head coach for a substantial period of time at the University of North Carolina. I mean, he had a winning record. I mean, you know, he, he had a winning record there. He was 45 and 43. But frankly, that's that's about how everybody does there. Well, Brown is 67 years old. His record was 69, 46 and 1 when he coached from 1988 to what, 1997. It seems like hiring any of these men is aimed at one constituency and that is the, you know, septuagenarian donor class that funds a lot of these programs to the degree that they like to be funded. Um, you know, Mac Brown's not getting hired to go recruit a 17-year-old out of high school in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, is he? Yeah, he is. But he's hiring the guy who's going to do that. Well, yeah. That's, that's who you want. Right now... So he's a figurehead. This, he's always been a figurehead. He's the, I think the, the complimentary term we give is CEO, i.e. overpaid, overpaid distributor. And schmoozer, and that's really all they want. And I think that they know this is a sad signal to me that that UNC boosters know what UNC football is at heart. That UNC just kind of has to, even if they're at one hundred percent of UNC's potential, what does that mean for them locally? Does that mean, oh, cool, we're the best football team in North Carolina, and we're on the level of Virginia Tech? That's that's where they're at. They're never going to be. A Georgia, they'll never be a Tennessee actually in terms of like the overall commitment to football. They've had a better record than Tennessee over the last 10 years. However, 
uh, that's not the point. The point is, as good as it's going to get, you're not going to get anybody to stay. Like, think about they, Mac Brown. They had Mac Brown. And what did Mac Brown do? Mac Brown went to Texas because the ceiling was higher there. And eventually the money was going to be better and the talent was going to be easier to get. Right now, out of the top 50 recruits in North Carolina, how many are committed to the University of North Carolina? Zero. One. And his number <laughs> is 49th out of 50. <laughs> well, it's yeah. nice that they that Mac Brown and UNC got each other on the way up and the way down. They missed that like whole, you know, the vertiginous top of the parabola. You never want to be there. But like with the Les Miles Kansas thing, it's an acknowledgement that the best that Kansas is going to do is be associated with someone who was good once. And, you know, that's you, you could do worse than that. Right, Stefan? Sure, you could. But they're all – getting back to the idea that they're all crazy um, because at that level, they clearly are all crazy. Um, should we talk about Urban Meyer, that kind of crazy, or should we talk about Dabo Sweeney, crazy? Which game should we talk about next? Uh, I think Urban Meyer. I mean – they crushed Michigan on Saturday. They scored more than 60 points. They didn't have the best season. They only had lost one game, but they, what, almost lost to Maryland, right? Yeah, that'll ruin any season. Seriously. They lost by 29 to Purdue. Yeah. Um, and after the game, what does Meyer talk about? Ugh, the adversity. Poor Urban Meyer. He got suspended for three games at the beginning of the season because he executed, I don't know, bad judgment is one way of putting it. You know, horrific behavior in keeping a guy on his staff about whom there were serious allegations of domestic violence. Um, but hey, yeah, adversity. The Ohio State University. Feel really bad for Urban Meyer. Hope they yeah, make the who, playoff. Yeah, who wouldn't? This is, this is, by the way, you can just... I've never lost by assuming the worst in a situation. And when this all happened, I thought, oh, he, he thinks he's the victim here. That's, that, that was number one. And nothing that's happened since uh, and has played out since has led me to think anything differently. And now, legitimately, thinks that the Michigan win has canceled all of this. Mm -hmm. It's all good again. So Alabama beat Auburn 52-21. to They're going to play Georgia in the SEC championship game. I think Georgia could beat them, so could Clemson. They probably won't, but they could. Um, and then it seems like the fourth spot in the college football playoff, whether it goes to Oklahoma or Ohio State, those seem like the two most likely candidates. That's just like a role of being sacrificed to Alabama and Tua in the first round. So perhaps we will get to see Urban Meyer get his comeuppance. And really the only way it seems like Urban Meyer understands comeuppance, which is on the field getting destroyed by Nick Yeah, Saban. no, I, you go back to saying, you know, Larry Fedora is insane and the coaches aren't very sane. Um that would be the only way Urban Meyer really, I think, will understand anything is if it happens on the field. And it won't because I don't think you'll see a team as deep, as uh, aggressive. And that's the different thing about this Alabama team. They are consistently aggressive. It used to be that Alabama would be very, very, very tight in the first, you know, they would be very tight in the second half. They would be looser in the first half and more aggressive. Now, you know they come out. They came out in the third quarter against Auburn and just hit the afterburners. They did not pause. They did not stop. Spencer Hall works for SB Nation. He does the Shutdown Full Cast podcast. He knows what to do with the Foot Locker gift card. Spencer, thanks as always. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to soccer, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I are going to talk about the concept of dues paying in sports media, whether it's important to earn your stripes by working for minimum wage while walking backwards in the snow. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
The final of the 2018 South American Club Football Championship, the Copa Libertadores, had been hyped in Argentina as la final de todos los tiempos, the final for all time. That's because the participants were two legendary clubs, Boca Juniors and River Plate, both based in Buenos Aires, both with crazy, passionate, intense, and sometimes violent fan bases. The violent part emerged on Saturday when River Plate supporters threw rocks, sticks, and bottles at the bus carrying Boca Juniors to the stadium for the second and deciding leg of the final. At least two players were injured by shattered glass. One reportedly got shards in one of his eyes. And when tear gas fired by police seeped through the broken windows of the bus, more players got sick, including former Argentina national and European star Carlos Tevez. South American and FIFA sportocrats tried to force Boca Juniors to play the game after a short delay. Then they they agreed to postpone it until Sunday, and then Sunday came and the game was suspended indefinitely. Joshua Robinson of the Wall Street Journal was supposed to cover a legendary match and wound up covering a legendary moment in the long history of soccer violence. He's still in Buenos Aires. Hey, Josh. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Uh, your advanced story before Saturday's planned game and the New York Times' advanced story both led with the same anecdote about how announcers on a local radio broadcast were calling the game in calm voices with soothing music instead of crowd noise in the background with a cardiologist in the booth to try to keep people from having heart attacks. This final was huge. I mean, huge enough for the journal to send you from London to cover it. Can you sort of put into context how big a deal this game was? This competition is 58 years old, and it's for the best teams in all of South America. And for the very first time, it turned out that those teams appeared to be the two hated rivals from uh, from Buenos Aires. Um, this has consumed the you know the city for weeks because it's played over two legs. And just to tell you the kind of national import that, that comes with these, are um, you know a former president of Boca Juniors, Mauricio Macri, is now president of Argentina, and he said before uh, before the final that it would take the loser twenty years to recover from this. So one aspect of this game that's fascinating to me is the notion that these teams in this game is somehow more authentic than European football. The head of the South American Federation said, this is real football. The Champions League is PlayStation football. And my sense, Josh, is that that's because the players on these teams aren't that great. Like other than Tevez, who I think many listeners will know, these are not guys who are um, of high international stature. Most of the great players from Argentina will go to Europe. And so the stars of, of these teams do not actually overshadow the identities of the teams. And so it's less about the players on the field and more about the identities of these clubs. And so the fact that the players aren't that great, I think, feeds into the notion that this is real football, that this is something bigger um, than soccer. Do you agree with that? I think that's a big part of it. And it, it speaks to the larger point about the economic imbalance between South American soccer today and, and European soccer. I mean, as as money often does in entertainment, it sanitized a lot of European soccer. So, you know, these teams that, that we encounter a lot in the Champions League no longer see themselves as really representing a neighborhood or a section of the city. They talk freely about being entertainment companies who see their rivals not as each other, but like Disney or Amazon. Um, I don't think you could ever get Boca Juniors to say, yeah, we care more about competing with Disney than with River Plate. And at the same time, what that feeds into is... is, is is that the culture that pervaded European soccer for decades, the working class notion, the acceptance of violence, the difficulty that, that authorities had in, in controlling it and eradicating it still exists. There have been more than 90 football-related deaths in Argentina in the last decade. And while officials of CONMEBOL, the South American Football Federation, and others said after the the events of Saturday that it was just a few misfits. I think that was the word that the president of Conmebol used over and over again in a press conference. There is, you know, the, this st still does permeate the sport in a way that it doesn't 
in Europe anymore, or at least in England, Italy, Spain, Germany anymore. Absolutely. And what happened over the course of the 80s and 90s, especially in England, was that uh, club owners seeking to change fan behavior did two things. One, they priced out a lot of the the more working-class fans that they believed were causing the trouble, um, and we can agree or disagree on that, but that was one strategy they approached. And the other was um, improving the, the buildings themselves, because they figured if the building is nicer, and, and I've had owners tell me this about think even things like bathrooms, if they're nicer, fans are less inclined to rip out the seats. Here, the infrastructure is incredibly old. Um, Rivers Stadium is more or less as it was when it hosted the 1978 World Cup final. We're still talking about concrete bleachers. Fans were running in because there are no assigned seats in most of the stadium. Um, so it's, it's very much retained a sort of pre, I would say, 90s uh, feel about it. Yeah, I don't know if you mentioned, Stefan, that in Argentina, there's a rule over the last few years that uh, a bunch of clubs, including these two, their visiting fans are not allowed to go to the away stadium as an attempt to try to curb this violence. And because of that, um, a lot of the action, it seems, is going on outside the stadium, on the way to the stadium. Um, I'm curious, Josh, you know, is your sense that this is a small number of, of fans, a bunch of misfits, as Stefan said it before, or is the issue here, are the people who are causing this violence, is it widespread? Are we talking about thousands upon thousands of people? In this particular case, it wasn't thousands who attacked the bus. But there is a, a wider acceptance of violence in the football culture here. Um, people kind of expect it. Um, and often, it's not just violence between rival sets of fans. There are rivalries within the same groups of fans. Um, different, shades, different shades of what are, what are called ultras, or, or groups that see themselves as either more authentic or have different political alignments. I mean, within a single group of fans, you could do a whole sociological history. Um, And as you rightly point out, away fans were banned from, uh, from traveling at, at every Superliga game and, and at all the uh, top tier Argentine games since 2013. Um, They lifted that ban partially ahead of this season, but kept it in place for games between, or for games involving, the big five Buenos Aires teams, which is why there were no Boca fans at, uh, at River this weekend. And they had their own open practice as a kind of send-off to the team last week at their own stadium that drew 50,000 for a practice. The last time Boca and River played in the uh, Copa Libertadores was in 2015. It wasn't the final. Um, the game was abandoned at halftime because fans of Boca managed to pepper spray river players in the tunnel like they managed to sort of infiltrate the stadium and attack the players and on saturday there were i read about 2000 police deployed but they also let the boca juniors bus drive down a street that was a place where river fans congregate and apparently it was not the normal route that they would take to the stadium and the police containment was poor um there were hundreds of fans there throwing, you know, and, and again, that small band of misfits, however many it was, but clearly the bus was attacked, period. Um, how on earth, you know, and what does this say about how a game like this is regulated in a place like Buenos Aires, that, that, that they could even get close enough to the bus for this to happen? Yeah, well, without getting too deep into Argentine politics, there is a lot of tension between local police at the moment and the Justice Ministry, um, issues over funding and and staffing. And so what happens is you get situations like this where uh, the police is being accused of, uh, of not properly handling the event or properly managing the crowds. And we saw even after this, even after the attack on the bus, 
they were running battles outside the outside the stadium on Saturday between river fans clashing with police um, over we're not sure what, um, but a, a situation where there was this anger at the game being called off. There was this anger at a perception, at confusion, really, that was raining everywhere. Um, and it came out sort of in, in a whole bunch of forms. Our friend Ken Bensinger, the author of the book Red Card, about the Justice Department investigation of uh, international football, had a great Twitter thread over the weekend talking about how a lot of what's going on in Argentina should also be about the state of the economy and the state of the political leadership. And these are there, there are people there that sort of encouraged violence in society as a way to undergird their own um, power. How important do you think those factors are, Josh, being down there and witnessing what you saw over the weekend? Um, I think there's obviously already a lot of underlying anger here um, at the, the state the country is in. But as you say, rightly, the uh, encouragement of violence, not while not always explicit, it's kind of assumed. Um, and my sense is that it's a very... Uh, it's seen as kind of a viable solution for for expressing yourself and for acting out rivalries, as we've seen between uh, between Boca and Junior, uh, between Boca and River. So this final is going to be played. Uh, allegedly, it must be played. The game must go on, right? Um, have you heard anything, Josh, about what the plans are? Do you have any speculation around uh, when and how? this match will be played and under what conditions is it possible that it could be played at an empty stadium as has been done uh, at games in Europe in the past for sure. I already thought for sure that when the first, the first time they tried to play it again, it would be in an empty stadium here at river on Sunday. Um, I was surprised when they decided not to do that and invited all of the fans back because at that point there's really no punishment for the club. Um, you know, maybe something down the line, but hey, we're just going to try this again. Everybody come back and um, we'll see what happens. Uh, clearly that didn't happen because there was no game. Now the CONMEBOL, which is South American Soccer's governing body, is going to meet Tuesday in Paraguay at its headquarters and decide or attempt to set a date and a place for this. There may yet be disciplinary repercussions as well. Um, but I'm not confident that this game will go ahead anywhere, if ever. Um, Common Ball has the opportunity to make a statement now and and punish River, potentially by throwing them out of the competition. Um, but there, there is another time limit at stake here, which is December 12th, the FIFA Club World Cup starts in Abu Dhabi, and South America needs to send a representative to that, a team, you know, normally it's it's champion. Um, so sometime between now and December 12th, they need to either have this game and, and find a champion on the field or kind of pick one. Um, and there are no guarantees that, that this game will go ahead, That it would, and even if it did, that it would go ahead in Buenos Aires. Clearly, Buenos Aires, this game is, has shown it's almost too big for Buenos Aires. Um, whether they decide, all right, let's fly both teams out to Abu Dhabi, where the Club World Cup is going to be and sort it out there is another matter, but then you have to get River to agree to that. It's um, it's a real mess, and the common ball is not going to come out of it well, no matter what happens. Well, none of the none of the sportocrats come off looking well after this. Uh, common ball and FIFA officials apparently were trying to pressure the team to play for Boca Juniors to play on Saturday with when like a half dozen of their players were vomiting, gagging, or in the hospital. Um, and, you know, again, this reflects the, the sort of classic arrogance and, and, and disorganization that you find in, in the, the sports bureaucracy at the highest levels. Absolutely. Um, FIFA's official position is that its president, Jenny Infantino, never pressured anyone to play. But even if he didn't say anything, his very presence uh, certainly, certainly adds uh, a consideration for the Commonwealth president who has to look over his shoulder and think, well, this guy traveled all this way, and we're about to show him that we can't handle uh, a major final. Um, that That's not a great look for him either. Joshua Robinson is a sports writer for The Wall Street Journal. He's the co-author with Jonathan Clegg of a book that is coming out in a couple of weeks. It's called The Club. 
how the English Premier League became the wildest, richest, most disruptive force in sports. Josh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now we move on from a sporting event with incredibly high stakes that didn't happen to one with stupendously low stakes that did happen. And boy, did it ever happen. The match between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. This wasn't just the match between... TM. This was the match, quote unquote, uh, has been touted for months as a mano a mano, winner take all $9 million face-off between the two greatest golfers of their generation, or at least a face-off between the greatest golfer of his generation and Phil Mickelson. In the lead-up to the event, Tiger Woods did his best to sell it, as in this appearance on TNT's Inside the NBA. Tiger, I think one of the things that everybody's looking forward to as far as the match goes is the fact that everybody's mic'd out there, the fact that there are going to be these side challenges, <laughs> side bets uh, in the course of right, in the course right. of the 18. Um, can you get in Phil Mickelson's head? Well, I've been in Phil's head for 20-some-odd years. And then when the balls were in play on Friday, it was a debacle, debacle-ish, debacle-adjacent. It was in the debacle conversation. Joining us now is the world's biggest Tiger Woods fan, Jim Newell. Uh, Jim, was your fandom worth $19.95? Uh, well, I think there's going to be a refund, right? Because they got the tech all wrong. So it'll be worth, uh, it will have cost zero dollars. So you it, was, it was it? worth a, oh, yeah. Well, I was at home, so my mom paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> so in the run up to the event, Jim, you were talking all big about, oh, I'm not going to pay for this. When I, was I doing that? I mean, I don't know if you were doing it in that tone of voice, but I feel like you, <laughs> I feel like you were making the claim that you were like above. Shelling out like you were too smart. Yeah, we all knew who that. We all knew how that would end, though. <laughs> so you did end up watching. Um, Stefan and I, I think, both watched the highlights. How bad was it, really? Like, did you have to be there to truly appreciate how bad it was? Uh, no, I think you could tell just how bad it was just by watching it. I mean, it was you know neither of them neither of them have clearly played in a pretty long time. Um, they're they're pretty rusty. Yeah, the level of of golf was pretty bad. The putting was especially terrible. And, you know, I mean, they're lucky that it came down to such a a close finish in the end. Otherwise, it would have been completely unsalvageable. Just, you know, after the first couple of holes, it just got a little boring there going on. Just the the level of golf was so bad. And you were just watching, you know, it's not like there was, as you said, there weren't very high stakes. So you're just watching these two older guys who didn't have their A-games taking a walk around Las Vegas. Um, and, you know, all this hype about the side bets. One, I didn't understand why we were supposed to care about the side bets in the first place. Drama. Like, okay. Yeah. And, you know, so they did, like, they did a couple closest to the pins, and they did that, you know, whether Phil would birdie the first hole. And that was pretty much it. And then it became a very close match between two guys for $9 million, so they didn't actually want to have distractions or banter. The organization of this was predicated on the past. Tiger did a lot of these. I mean, seven or eight, right, in the late 90s, 2000s, yeah. um, where, look, he was at the peak of his game. People believe that they were that there might be some interest there in watching Tiger Woods play. But this is not then. I mean, this feels like, like you said, two middle-aged guys who are past their prime. Well, the- well, the other thing was like out on some bullshit that when, the media is going to buy into. Well, the other thing was when these like primetime – Made for TV match play golf things happen, whether it was like Tiger versus David Duvall or Tiger Tiger versus Rory McElroy. These were on like free network television. Mm-hmm. And so the the notion that this Tiger versus Phil thing was something that people would be willing to pay for, that it was unprecedented, was just totally bogus from the beginning. Tiger versus Rory back when it happened, that wasn't that long ago. That was in like 2012. Um was more kind of exciting or interesting 
than this Tiger versus Phil match because Tiger and Rory had never really done anything like this before. Rory is like the young up and coming guy and Tiger's the old vet. And so just this premise didn't really make any sense from the beginning. Yeah, I think that it would have been better if um, it almost would have been better if they weren't playing for anything. I mean, Grant, if they weren't playing for anything, neither of them would have done it. But then there wouldn't have been this, you know, uh, this tension and the silence that happened on the entire back nine where they're trying to win all the money and they could have just, you know, screwed around a little bit more. Um, because that was, I mean, to me, it was just having them mic'd up and having them talk was supposed to be the one thing that would be really interesting, not the side bets or anything. And they started off, you know, I don't know, I guess Tiger apparently went to Fred Couple's house the day before for Thanksgiving and they were just like <laughs> talking about that and that was fine. But then, you know, it just – Another problem was a lot of the times they were talking and the announcers would just start talking over them. And it's like, what are you even doing? You know, you were hyping up all this banter the whole time and you're just talking over them. Can we listen to a little bit of uh, Phil and Tiger failing to make a side bet and just the amazing drama? Oh, yeah, that was something. Low score on a hole from here for two. And given that I'm spotting you 40 yards, what kind of odds are you laying? (laughs) No odds. You either take it or you don't. Don't let him beat you. Yeah, at least one. Three to two odds, I'll take it. No. <laughs> well, what you what you did get a sense there of what the main highlight of this was that you couldn't get in any other uh, venue was heavy breathing. It was pretty much four hours of mic'd up heavy breathing whenever they walked up a hill. In analyzing their personalities, too, this feels like a terrible fit. I mean, regardless of their perceived animosity or their periods of frostiness over the last 20 years. Phil seems like such a striver, like he's trying to be liked and Tiger with his sort of dispassionate distance didn't seem like he cared at all, certainly in the lead up to this thing. And I gather during the playing of it too. Yeah. I I think Phil in the last years just turned into this sort of, uh, weird clown brand that he's now trying to build up as much as he can like this crazy reckless gambler who might just you know hit moving putts or who knows what he'll actually do and then try to prove that that was actually the you know scientifically proper thing to do so he sort of i don't know he's sort of become this character and um i i think tiger feels a little bit of a need to um you know, show a little bit of a nicer side, you know, now that he's sort of working on his legacy a little bit. But they're still just completely different people that, you know, this idea that they would just, you know, be bantering all the time seemed a little forced. Well, there have been allegations that Mickelson has a gambling problem, right? Which you can see pretty clearly (laughs) when he's saying first thing, you know, in the press conference two days before, like, a hundred grand on the that I birdie the first hole, and then Tiger says double it, you know, and he says I baited you just the way I wanted you, to, you know, just the way I wanted you to say it. Did he take and, the bet? Yeah, he did take the bet, and then of course he, you know, didn't birdie the first hole. Well, it was all canned though, so that's sure. that's the fundamental issue with this. It's an insult to everyone's intelligence except Jim, who paid the nineteen ninety five. It's the, this notion that this clearly manufactured, made for TV event that there's something important or weighty about it. And no matter how much money you throw at it, no matter how much you literally show the pile of money on the screen during the event, it's a big-ass yeah. big pile of money, um, that you're going to convince people that there's something significant or weighty or monumental about this. It's, it's an insult to everyone's intelligence. And what Darren Ravel said, and I think this is probably true, is that this broadcast was significant for sports leagues that want to figure out how to integrate live gambling now that um, gambling is legal in, in the U.S. outside of, of Vegas, gambling on sports, that they want to figure out how do we have banter about gambling? How do we have live gambling action during a broadcast? It was kind of a test run for that. So this was presumably very interesting for sports executives, if not for the audience. Yeah, as a, as a data-gathering operation, <laughs> it was probably useful in that sense. But, well, but was it? I mean, how far did it push? I mean, beyond those couple of, you know, ooh, I'm going to bet you $100,000 that I'll bury the first hole, or will you take this bet? No, I will not take this bet. I mean, what did we learn then about well, whether that there, whether there are ways to integrate gambling into a into Well, there were all like sorts of like, you know, 
on every shot, there were odds at the bottom of the screen mm-hmm. about, you know, who would win or who would put it on the green first Dead or live. those sorts of things. Like, and there were people probably, like, gambling addicts just gambling the entire time on every situation. There were live odds that were, they were showing on the screen that showed, like, real-time data about how people were betting. It was also sponsored by a betting firm. And so this could presumably be the live betting is a thing that will, a huge ha- thing. will happen right. or at least that leagues, once they get over themselves, will want to happen. So, well, they'll probably and the, – and a way to do it in a different venue. They can sort of segregate this, right? If you can do a show that has a bunch of uh, sabermetricians talking about baseball apart from the regular broadcast, you can certainly do a separate broadcast for people that are interested in the odds and live betting where the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL gets a cut. Sure. And this is it'll be a leap to do something like this on a real sporting event. The thing that I keep coming back to is that this was a fake event and it had the real athletes and they had all of the hype and they wanted to make it at seem as real as possible. So the betting on it could seem more legitimate, I guess. But the question is, is the future of this kind of integration of gambling, can it come to like an actual pre-existing basketball game, football game, golf match, or will it be segregated into events that are made for specifically made for gambling? And would those things ever be interesting to people who aren't compulsive sports bettors? Yeah. I mean, do they need to be? I mean, is it is it all right to just have these things set up for the amusement of, you know, what are essentially day traders? You know, just whatever's happening out there, just some exhibition, just gambling off of it the whole time. Yeah. The problem is that there isn't enough traffic there if you're just using it for staged events. I mean, that's not where the money is. I mean, every league is going to want to generate billions of dollars in revenue through gambling. And that is going to be the point. And if you don't do it in your regular, real competition, then there's no point in doing it. There's not going to be enough of this sort of stuff. As a, t- as, a, as a test case, sure. But that's not the ultimate goal. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Vegas a while back now, this must have been like five years ago, uh, I forget what casino it was, but there was real-time betting and basketball like on free throws. You could bet on whether it would it would be a make or miss. And so the technology exists. The question is just mainstream network or ESPN broadcasts integrating it into, uh, you know, what's typically been a totally gambling-free, gambling-averse broadcast as a marketing mechanism so that the kids out there, Stefan, children like your daughter mm-hmm. – We'll be watching a game and be like, sports gambling, that's cool. That's what I want to do with my life is bet on Phil Mickelson making a putt on 16. Yeah. I mean, your kids could just be all, you know, just talking to their bookie the whole time when they're just watching Phil Mickelson. But I don't think this is ever going to happen again. So I don't don't know. You think this destroyed – pay-per-view golf I think forever. They, well, I mean, especially since they're going to take a pretty big loss now that everyone's getting a refund, I would think. Pay-per-view in sports, Stefan, just is so, feels so scammy. And in media, the trend in, digital, the trend in digital media is towards getting people increasingly to pay for the product. And there's like a legitimacy that's conferred. On something like oh, the New York Times, it's oh, you should subscribe to that and and uh, give them money. That means that they're they're more legit. And everything in sports that you have to pay for, it's like some rigged ass boxing match, some UFC where Conor McGregor does something racist, or like this thing. <laughs> it's just curious to me that in sports. It, doesn't seem seem as if it necessarily had to happen that way. Well, we're paying for sports events. You're is just you're, a. It feels like if you're paying for it, it's automatically that means something is is awry. Well, you're ignoring the fact that this is how television evolved. I mean, we're paying we do for, pay for it cable. in our cable bills. Poor analogy on my part. And we're paying for you know, for Major League Baseball's package to watch every game or the NBA, NBA ticket, whatever, you know, so 
every model is moving toward this. This was just so explicit because this was the equivalent of, you know, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig barnstorming after the season in 1927. I'd pay for that. Well, I would have paid for that. I'd pay for that now. Um, So... This, it's just the phoniness surrounding this and the what appeared to be lack of interest on the part of at least one of the participants that struck me as so weird. I mean, in addition to the fact that, like, these guys don't need $9 million. They don't need to, like, buff their brands. Why are they, they letting it. their agents pressure them into they doing this? They would like this? it, though. I mean, they would like it. <laughs> oh, someone is offering me. Yeah. I mean, they'll take it, you know. Yeah. I think I think they they felt a little bit, you know, the nine million was enough to convince them a little bit to get into would it. Would seven million have not been enough? No, seven million is a trash number. <laughs> they would never have taken that. <laughs> eight and a half. We'll do it for eight and a half. Uh, yeah, there probably. Was I think such there was some. I think there was actually a reason that you know. I think they were were thinking ten million, and then the PGA Tour because ten million is what the PGA Tour gives out for the FedEx Cup, so they were very upset. So they didn't uh, they didn't want another number to overshadow you know golf's course. ultimate cash prize. So they settled on nine half million a hole. Of course, yeah. This is why you know. Pop, of they ended up playing twenty two holes though. So this is why this is why pop stars play concerts for for dictators. And I assume the dictators are not getting, you know, their best work. But you'll show up for five million, nine million. So you're saying you're you're equating dictators with gamblers? Exactly. It's been a kind of a poor analogy segment for me, so I'm just going to roll with that. Jim Newell, congratulations on getting your mom's 1995 back. Congratulations to your mom for Thanks, having mom. for having 1995. Verizon still hasn't announced if they're going to give it back, but here's hoping, mom. Did you tell your mom that it was going to cost 1995 to watch what you were watching? I on just television? I just sort of ordered it, and then she came back. I was like, oh look, what's on? <laughs> Jim Newell, thank you. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And I mentioned that there are five, uh, there have been five, seven overtime games in the Football Bowl subdivision, FBS, college football. One of them is a crazy outlier among the crazy outliers, which was then in October 2006, North Texas and Florida International played a seven-overtime game with the final score of 25 to 22. What? Yeah. You get the ball at the 25-yard line of your opponent seven times in a row, and yet you can only manage uh, a total of 25 points well, Spencer 22 was, points. Spencer was talking about how tired everybody gets. Maybe it was the uh, offenses that were tired in that game. North Texas led 5 nothing at halftime. Should have ended the game right there. <laughs> it ended. The re- regulation ended 16-16. Um, the game was won in the seventh overtime by a kicker, because kickers are important, no matter what Spencer Hall says. The kicker's name was Dennis Hopovac. And it was his fifth made uh, field goal on nine attempts in the game. Each team missed four field goals in overtime. (laughs) But that's not important. The kickers retired, too, from standing around for four hours. The important thing is that Dennis Hopovac was the hero. Hero kicker. I love a hero kicker. Stefan, what is your Dennis Hopovac? Well, I was happily watching Tottenham thump Chelsea 3-0 in the Premier League on Saturday when, in the 85th minute, this happened. Well, this should be a goal, and it is. And Chelsea have one back with just over five minutes remaining and the meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud. My wife was watching with me, and we simultaneously asked each other if we had just heard what we had heard. Meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud. Meaty French forehead. We were not alone in our stupefaction. I searched meaty French forehead on Twitter, and there were plenty of other viewers who were similarly confused by the call by Arlo White 
on NBC. The meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud was a sentence I didn't need to hear. Meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud. I don't know, Arlo White. The meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud. Why on earth would those words pass through your lips? Did the announcer say meaty French forehead or did I have a stroke? A little more searching revealed that I am, along with a couple of other dozen Twitter commenters, just clueless when it comes to Arlo White and Olivier Giroud's meaty French forehead. White first uttered the line to describe the French international scoring a goal with his head way back in 2014 when he played for Arsenal. Giroud, that is, not Arlo White. I believe this is the original a 90th-minute goal to rescue a 2-2 tie at Everton on August 23rd, 2014. It's a good cross. Back in, the header comes in. It's the equaliser for Giroud. The meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud has probably earned Arsenal a point. He did it again in December of that year. The meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud sends it into the corner. And a bunch more times after, including on an 89th-minute equalizer against Manchester United in 2016. Here's one more because rule of three when it comes to clips. This is a game winner by Giroud in the 85th minute against Leicester City in August of 2017. The Men in Blazers duo of Roger Bennett and Michael Davies picked up on the call because it's kind of what they do and it's perfect for them. Earlier this year, they had Arlo White on their show, which is also an NBC property, and asked him about some of his more famous utterances like flamehead face-off in the center of the park, a feeding frenzy that reduced the cockerels. Tottenham, to a lifeless carcass. Here's Roger Bennett asking White about meaty French forehead. Roy Hudson, by the way, is another soccer announcer famous for absurd, over-the-top turns of phrase. A meaty French forehead, you know, flamehead flare-up or whatever it was. Yeah. You, you just have to go with the flow and whatever yeah. comes into your mind. Some days it's better than others, frankly, yeah, no, depending on how you feel. But what, uh, I, I tend not to, I don't script big moments. Meaty French forehead, meaty French forehead. Mm. You didn't. You don't have this giant book of Ray Hudsonisms on your bookshelf, and you're like, like a book of spells that just came out. No, well, I've not topped it, and that was four seasons ago. So, <laughs> no, I don't sit there and think of those phrases because I think then you're looking at a notepad instead of watching the game. Michael Davies, though, wanted to know more about meaty French forehead in particular. He asked White whether he believed that French foreheads are generally meaty, or if Giroud's forehead is especially meaty. It was the fact that his forehead is inherently French, Yeah, but it's meaty. What is, get a word that would describe the fact that he can just thump a ball with his head. It's yeah. meaty. And it meaty. Meaty. Yeah. Uh, so it was, just, it was just Olivier Giroud. All right, so the question now is, of course, as with all sports catchphrases, whether meaty French forehead has run its course. When Giroud was entering a game last year, at NBC Sports Soccer tweeted, meaty French forehead alert in all caps, with two police cars revolving light emojis. There was just one reply, delete this tweet and your account. But I hope that white remains undeterred. While meaty French forehead does get abused a little, as you'd expect, by soccer people online, for Arlo White, it's a tiny catchphrase that's become an inside joke, and the risk of it spreading to other announcers is very, very low. White can't even use it that often. I mean, it's really only effective when... Giroud scores a goal with his head. I mean, he could use it every time Giroud heads the ball, and I guess he's done that once or twice, but it's not as good. And Giroud is 32, his years in the Premier League, and therefore playing games called by Arlo White are probably numbered. Sad. Why is it sad? Whenever days are numbered, it's sad. Oh, yeah. I don't like number numbering the days. Yeah. Poor Olivier Giroud. Maybe he'll come to Major League Soccer. We could use more uh, meaty French foreheads stateside. Josh, what's your Dennis Hopovac? It's the season of uh, trophy games in college football. Your old oaken buckets, your Paul Bunyan's axes. Mm -hmm. Love false pluralization because there's only one of each of those. Spencer Hall, who is getting uh, a lot of attention in this afterball segment, rightfully so. He uh, tweeted about a trophy that I did not know about and 
I'm now happy that I do know about, which was the UAB Memphis Rack of Ribs trophy. (laughs) Indeed, the UAB Sports website noted that the 2006 UAB versus Memphis football game will usher in a new tradition in the rivalry between the two schools. This year, the teams will be playing for a new trophy, a 100-pound bronzed rack of ribs that will be passed back and forth between the winning school each uh, year. The article goes on to say that the theme of the trophy comes from the tradition of fine barbecue in both Memphis and Birmingham. Go figure. And that the Bones Trophy is being created by a sculptor named Heather Spencer and create that trophy she did. The trophy was 100 pounds. It has um, two rib-shaped handles, staying very on brand. It's two feet long by two feet wide. She used two slabs of beef ribs to make the plastic molds that would be uh, then used to create the statue. This is courtesy of an article, this information, from the Daily Orange website. She made the trophy in two months. Uh, She said, I don't think at first it really hit me what it was going to be for. Not really uh, sure about that. Someone said, why don't you make a 100-pound trophy of ribs. We're not going to tell you what it's for. Just do it. She's like, sure. Uh, First, I thought this would just be an interesting project, a new challenge, she said. Instead, Spencer found herself overwhelmed, especially after seeing National Guardsmen watching over the trophy before UAB claimed it. There's a video on YouTube that has no sound. I was looking for something, maybe a clip to put in this after ball. There's just a video for 30 seconds of the trophy rotating. A 3D model sort of like, like the of ribs, log fire, just rotating. Thirty seconds of rack of hundred pound rack of ribs, rotating. If you do want more, there's a, a Wikipedia article, not on the actual Wikipedia, but on a special Birmingham specific wiki site about the battle for the bones, the annual college football game. I believe that there was at one point a Battle for the Bones regular Wikipedia entry, but that it was deleted, presumably due to a lack of notability, which is a crime, and Wikipedia's uh, leaders need to be punished for their transgression. But anyway, this started in 2006. UAB won four games. Memphis won three before uh, the rivalry was discontinued. There was also... Only one time in 2006, a barbecue competition that was associated with the game. The professional barbecue competition was won by Smoke and Buffalo, while the amateur competition was won by First Access Realty Bone Team. So congratulations to First Access Realty Bone Team. You really did it in 2006. The rivalry, the Battle of the Bones, was discontinued after 2012. Schools went into different conferences. UAB discontinued its football team briefly. As you might recall, mm-hmm. the, the Bones Trophy has not been seen in years. Really? It needs to be revived so it can rotate. Well, who won it last? Memphis won it last, 46-9 to nine in 2012. So presumably they have they're, possession of the trophy. They're nibbling on it. They've been nibbling on it for they're eight pouring years. Pouring sauce on it. <laughs> Nothing tastes, tastes better than sauce on bronze. Mmm. Delicious. So the battle for the Bones needs to come back. The Bones trophy needs to come back. College football has not and will not be the same without it. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.